Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Michael Zagaris. Michael got his start photographing legendary musicians such as Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Jerry Garcia, and Leonard Skinner, to name a few. Michael has worked as a team photographer for the San Francisco 49ers and the Oakland Athletics for over 40 years. In this interview, I speak to Michael about how he went from working as Robert F. Kennedy's political speechwriter to pursuing a career in photography. Michael Zagaris is someone who has documented and accomplished a lot within photography, so I was really excited to get a chance to speak with him. So I hope you enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening. Yeah, glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, first off, I got to thank Brad Mangin for setting this up. Um, can't thank him enough. Um, how long have you guys known each other? You know, Brad and I go back to the probably mid-80s. I want to say 84, 85. Although, here's an interesting little note. I knew Brad's dad when he was a basketball player at College of the Pacific in the mid-50s. My brother and I used to go to practice every day for, you know, all the football games all the football practices at COP, that 56 team sent 11 guys to the NFL. People like Tom Flores, Dick Bass, mm. Bill Striegel. Um, and his dad played basketball with A.D. Williams, R.C. Owens, Clyde Connor, who ended up playing for the 49ers, and John Thomas. Wow. And I remember getting him – You know, we used to collect shoestrings with – have the players autograph them. That's a challenge. So that's how I, I knew Brad's dad from 1955-56. And then I ran into Brad when he was a little kid with his dad at the Giant Games. And then, you know, the rest is, as they say, history. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I was interested in talking to you. I know we talked last week for a couple minutes. Uh, how the last couple months been for you, everything going on? Like normally this time of year, you'd be busy shooting uh, Oakland A's baseball Um What's your kind of day-to-day been, and how's everything going with you, I guess? You know, in a way, this is – I don't want to say this has been a godsend, but it's Mm -hmm. been a pause that's allowed me really to kind of take stock of where I'm at, where I've been. The last seven or eight years, I got to the point where there was hardly any – time between seasons you know the 49er season would end I'd go to the Super Bowl and then I'd have usually two two and a half weeks between the Super Bowl going to spring training and don't get me wrong I mean most people go dude that's a dream yes it is in many respects but when you have to be someplace every day even if it's where you want to be At a certain point, you're going, oh, my God. The hard thing the last few years, too, has been the workload. You know, back in the day, we shot our games. You dumped your film off. You picked it up the next day from the lab, whether it was black and white where you got proofs and eggs Mm -hmm. or color slides and you, you picked your stuff up. There was none of the immediacy of, Oh, we want to see your shit now. Yeah. So you had plenty of time to turn it around. I was, you know, in those days too, I was not just shooting 
for the athletics and the 49ers. Baseball season, I was shooting for the A's. I was shooting for baseball cards, um, upper deck, Donruss, Fleer, Tops, you know, depending on the year. I was doing assignments for Sport Magazine, for Sports Illustrated, um, football. I was doing the 49ers. I was doing NFL properties. You know, I was also doing things for Sport Magazine, occasionally for SI. So you were always busy, but you didn't have, after a game, for instance, here's a typical, let's say the A's are playing Detroit Tigers tonight. I'll go to the ballpark. I'll leave my house in San Francisco, drive over to Oakland. That used to be about a 40-minute drive. But in the last five years with the tech explosion, it could be a 45-minute drive. It could be an hour-and-a-half drive. Mm. I get to the ballpark around 3.30 for a 7.30 game, go to the clubhouse, hang with the players, talk, kibitz, take pictures, you know, because a lot of what I do is behind the scenes stuff as well as game action. Um, Batting practice, I'll do things with the visiting team sometimes as well, shoot shots of them in the dugout, hang out with them, talk to them. Game comes, shoot the game. After the game, go back to the clubhouse, break down, leave. I'll get home. You know, unless it's a three and a half hour game, I'll get I'll get back here about eleven thirty. By the time I download and do a quick edit for the club and then put it on zip drive, it's one thirty, quarter to two. Yeah. And you get up the next day. It's even crazier in August when I'm doing two teams. Yeah. I'll give you an example. The A's were playing Kansas City on a Saturday night preseason game. I, I left with the 49ers on Friday, so I had to miss the Friday night game, the Saturday A's game. They were playing the Yankees. I was pissed about that. We played a, I think, a 7 o'clock start in Kansas City. After the game, go to the locker room, change, dress, get on the bus, go to the plane. 49er plane touches back down to San Jose about 3.30 in the morning. I drive from San Jose, get back to my house about 4.30 download, edit, get to bed about 7.30 in the morning, get up at 9, drive to the Coliseum for the Yankee A game. Now everybody goes, oh, what a dream. And I go, are you (laughs) out of your fucking mind? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's been challenging. This time has given me time to reflect. Um, There are a number of projects I'm working on that I never would have had the time to really devote to. I spent almost three weeks going through six file cabinets filled with slides and black and whites of family stuff that uh, I was, these guys are doing a documentary on me. Mm. You know what, Had, had it not been for this, there's a chance I may never have seen those again. I just wouldn't have had the time. Yeah, because that's like a full-time job in itself, this like uh, managing your archive um, for any photographer, but especially someone like you because you've, you've shot so much stuff that this starts to like back up at a certain point. Yeah, no, and, and, and you know what? Now, I mean, I don't think anybody realizes the time, and I'm glad that I get to look at my edit 
Mm. I mean, I think it's important. I, I would not want anybody else to do it because, you know, you get an idea of what you've got that day, where you're at, how you're progressing. I mean, all things like that. But it's the ongoing and then, you know, having to do some Photoshop, some captioning, um, give it to the club when the club goes on the road. Then I'll spend like five or six days doing another edit for Getty and getting their stuff up. It's time that I have, but because of that, it's hard to ever read books anymore. Yeah. A long article, go to a movie, go to a gig. And you know what? No matter how cool whatever you're doing is, if you're doing it 24-7 at a certain point, it's like, fuck. I, I remember in 1971, I was in Geneva, Switzerland on a rock and roll thing. And a friend of mine went, you know, we, we go to this club called the Blackbird and he knew that the chef and everything. So we go in the back and we're hanging out and we come back and I'm at the bar with this German guy and we're talking and every two seconds, man, he's craning his neck, looking around and he's, he's checking out every woman that's going by. We continue to talk. Well, it turns out, you know, he's a photographer, too. He starts talking about his family, whips out his wallet. I start, you know, I saw this, your daughter, this is so-and-so. And then I suddenly thought, I said, wait a minute. Who the fuck is this? I did it to my wife. I said, that's your wife? You're checking out other women? I said, she's unbelievable, man. I said, she looks like Bridget Bardot. Turns out it was Bridget Bardot. <laughs> he was married to Bridget Bardot. And, uh, and I said, bro. You're married to Bridget Bardo and you're checking other women out. And he looked at me and he goes, my friend, let me tell you, you have steak every day. Soon you will wish for a hamburger. And he was dead serious. And I started to laugh. And then I thought, yeah, no matter how cool what you're doing is, if you're doing it all the time, at a certain point, you're, you're like, I need a break, right? You know, I, yeah, I need to do something else. Yeah, it's a grind. And, um, I, and you know what? I, I love what I do. It's, it's almost not like a real job. Mm -hmm. um, but you know what? Whatever I've done, whether it's the football, baseball, the rock and roll, you know, the, being with cool groups, fashion, women, at a certain point, I get bored. I get tired. Of it. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's great. Now what? And I think... That's anything in life. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything here that will really keep my interest 24-7 for long. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I've always been innately curious, which is one of the reasons I do what I do. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's not unlike being an actor in a Stanislavski movie. Because, and that's, you know what, Alex, that's why I got into this. It wasn't. You know, I, I went to school on a football scholarship. I played football and baseball. I was into politics. I was a Sino-Soviet major. I thought at one point, when I'm done with college, I'll play in the NFL for a few years. You know, this is when you're, you're young and you're, you're dreaming. And when you're 18, 19, anything you dream, you think is going to happen. Yep. And then I thought after the NFL, then I'll run for Congress and I'll run for the Senate. I'll be president. And this is in the 60s when people were much more idealistic and altruistic and that was all possible. 
And so I ended up working for Bobby Kennedy. The night he was killed, I was about 15 feet behind him. Damn. That was it for me. I had to, f I had to the next morning get on a plane in Los Angeles, fly back to San Francisco. I was in law school at the time. I had a contracts exam. I was doing really well in law school, although I, I won't say I hated it, but I knew by that time already, I, this is not what I wanted to do. Was law, was law something like your family kind of pressured you to get into mm -hmm. or, or what kind of made you start down that path, I guess? Um, because I, you know, they thought it was a good idea. They didn't really pressure me, but I, I thought it would be the perfect place to go from law into politics, mm -hmm. not really knowing. And I was, you know, now this is 1967, 1968. The whole world was starting to change. I'd come from back, I'd gone to school in Washington, D.C. I come back to California. The whole 60s thing is starting. But I'm at Santa Clara Law School, which was like being at Bellarmine Prep, where I went to prep school. Guys are still wearing Madras shirts. And I'd go to, I'd go to the hate, and it was like, the hippie thing was happening. The revolution was in full in Berkeley. And I, and my thing was to me, the law should be something that you use to arrive at justice. Mm -hmm. And half the people I was in law school with were there for the status, the remuneration. The other half were in love with the law. <laughs> and to me, the law was merely something that you used the way an artist uses paints to arrive at justice. Yeah. And I could see early on, it was all a game. And as many lawyers will say, when you go to see them, well, Alex, how much justice can you afford? Yeah. So I was already, I had one foot out the door. So I had to go back. Um, they passed out the, the final exam. I had six or seven blue books. And I had this, these two little wax paper things, you know, headshots of players that would come in the tops baseball cards. And I had always kept the Roberto Clemente and the Juan Marichal. And I was kind of numb. And I just found out that Bobby had died. And I was just like, I remember looking at the test for like, I don't know, two, three, four minutes, just blank. And then I remembered I had that, those two things. So I took out one of the wax papers, put it on the, front of the blue book, took a quarter out, transferred the head of Juan Marichal onto my blue book, do a little, drew a balloon where his mouth was and wrote, Mike, this is all bullshit. <laughs> and I proceeded to fill seven or eight blue books with how America was fucked and murdered its leaders. And that was the end of law school. My parents freaked. They what, were like, what did you like? What did you take away from like working with uh, Robert Kennedy? Um, like, what were you doing with him? And like, what did you take away from like um, being that close to politicians? Obviously, it's different now than it was then. But like, I guess anything you kind of took away from like working that closely with politicians? I I mean, first of all, I was incredibly naive when I first went up to the hill. I mean, I was so naive. I thought Peter was a rabbit, and. I soon found out the deal making and, and the compromises. Now, let me say this. In the mid 60s, there was a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans, to be sure. And shortly after Bobby, you know, Jack was assassinated, 
um, Goldwater ran, but there was none of the contention and the separation and the rift that there is now. I had a lot of friends on the Hill that were Republican. We differed on some things, but we hung out together. We partied together. We talked. You know, it was cool. And I really thought you could change the world. Yeah. Bobby, I, I, I really, you know, when I started out, I was like basically a glorified page. And I was answering legislative mail. I worked up from that to, I was, we'd get like 25 or 30 papers, big city papers each day, and I'd have to scan for anything about the Kennedys, clip them out. Um, then I started doing what they call legislative research. If he's going to, Bobby's going to do a speech on Brazil, I'd go to the Library of Congress and call information and bring that back. And people like Jeff Greenfield and Adam Olinsky would craft that into speeches. And when I started law school, that February, Gene McCarthy had won in New Hampshire. and Bobby decided to run for the presidency. So while I stayed in law school, I went back to work for him in California um, out of the Democratic uh, Party headquarters in, in Santa Clara, uh, John Vasconcellos who was an assemblyman, ran the office, and I was doing things up and down the valley, had made a couple trips to Oregon for the Oregon primary, and then found myself in Los Angeles at the ambassador the night of the assassination. Wow. You know, after that, after the law school thing, first of all, I was immediately, because this, this is the middle of the Vietnam War, yeah. I'm immediately, like within a month, reclassified 1A. My parents are going, what the fuck are you going to do? Yeah. With your life now. And I said, you know what? I don't know, but I'll know when I see. And then I dropped LSD. <laughs> um, not, not to escape, not to get fucked up. I was searching. I had read Huxley's Doors of Perception a few months before. I'd read John Hersey, the novelist, uh, had a, a, a book called Don't Look Now about an acid trip. I was huge into music since like 54, 55, big into Beatles. I knew the Beatles had dropped when I listened to the Revolver album. And so I was very curious about it. And I, I that first acid trip, I learned more about self, about what the universe is really all about, not, not the bullshit that I'd been taught by well-meaning people, Catholic schools, my parents, you know, study hard, listen to your elders, get good grades in school. See, you know, you can go to a good law school and, you know, marry a beautiful girl and get a good job and have a big house and a big car and everybody will be proud of you. You know, kind of the American dream that I think many people yeah. at that point were, you know, pushed towards, you know, and that acid trip, it was like pulling the curtain back. And at that point, I started going to the Fillmore because of the music. And it was so much, the Fillmore was so much more than music. It was culture. It was revolution. Um, the bands that really blew my mind, and I, I knew about anyway, but were the, the Brits who had basically taken our blues roots, much of what most of our kids had never heard, and had reworked them coming here with their own, you know, theatrical Carnaby style. And we're basically changing our culture while in turn being changed by it. So I, I started 
working on a book, basically on all of that. And I, I'd go to the Fillmore sometimes to in the family dog two, three times a week. I'd have my tape recorder, a little camera. I wasn't taking pictures at that point. I mean, didn't consider myself a photographer, but I would have a camera with me to record it the way you might on a trip. And I'd have a couple of joints in my pocket and hang out with, and you know, the musicians were, we were all the same age. Mm-hmm. And this was all new to all of us. And um, after about a year of that, I had about 15, 20 interviews. And I remember I had interviewed Eric Clapton just before Cream broke up. So he came back. He was with Delaney and Bonnie. I remember they, he liked to stay at the Sausalito Inn. So I go to the Sausalito Inn, unannounced, knock on the door. There are no phones. And that's one of the reasons Eric liked to stay there. No TVs in the rooms, no phones in the rooms. And so you're, and you know, you're in South Salido, you're right on the bay. So I knocked on the door, Eric is sitting and goes, Hey man, what's up? And I said, Hey, I just wanted, I wanted to bring the interview, you know, the transcript of the interview we did. I've got a little hash. Have you, you know, see if you like it. So I remember we smoked some hash and started having those esoteric conversations you have when you're like really high. Like, oh, oh, wow, look at this this bread. (laughs) And he was, I remember he was reading a book on Native Americans and, you know, how romantic that was. And and he started looking through the transcript of the interview. And I I brought some proof sheets and a little loop so I could do that while he was looking at the interview. And at one point he goes, hey, man, what have you got there? And I said, just some proof sheets I'm looking at. He says, do you mind if I have a look? And I, I said, uh, yeah. So I handed him a couple of proof sheets and I had, you know, a little loop, handed him the loop. So he's got the proof sheets held out and he has the loop about maybe 12 inches above the proof sheet and his eye kind of a little above the loop and it's going, oh, yes, it's quite good. I said, Eric, if you actually put the loop on the proof sheet, put your eye in the loop, you can actually see these. <laughs> so he, he starts looking at him and he goes, fucking hell, these are fucking great, man. He says, wow. He says, can we use these? And I said, for what? He says, albums, songbooks. He says, look, man, we'll pay you. Mm. And I said, uh, cool, yeah, that, that'd be great. He says, look, the writing's all right, but you should be like doing this for a gig. And that was how I got into it. I'd always taken pictures from the time I was about six or seven years old we used to do our own little football cards but never with the thought of someday i'm going to do this for a living it was just something you did and And it was a perfect segue um and, and you know what i never i mean i never took a class in photography um but i learned by doing and my class was british vogue italian vogue French photo and I'd see, you know, I'd see all the best people and what they were doing and it was incredible. And I learned every day from that and I'd ask questions and, you know, I never got into it either as a job or to be a photographer. I remember seeing blow up and, uh, Jean Shrimpton and her friend were, you know, breaking into, um, what's the, the photographer's name at the time in his studio and, and basically fucking him and yeah and he's hanging out with rock groups and i thought this is a gig this is, <laughs> this is dynamite and you know what, what it's always allowed me to do because 
my process has always been whatever I'm shooting to shoot it as a photojournalist. Um, up close and personal, behind the scenes, because most people don't see anything behind the scenes, whether you're doing sports or whether you're doing music. If you go to a gig, you see them on the stage. You don't need to see a thousand pictures of them on the stage. The same with sporting events. You see players playing. You see that shit in the paper. You see it in Sports Illustrated. You see it on TV. I wanted to get behind the scenes, players at their locker, players in the dugout, players hanging out. The same with the musicians. In the hotels, backstage, getting high. Um, and you know what? Also, I, I, my whole approach was Stanislavski. I wanted to become what I was shooting. And in so doing, I would have the view for anybody seeing the pictures of the people that were in the pictures. Yeah. So I didn't want you to see the band like you're a voyeur. I wanted you to feel like you were in the band. And, and for me at the time, I was whatever I was doing. And, and, and did you always kind of have that confidence and that personality? Because that's an interesting thing, kind of like um, reading a lot of interviews about you and kind of talking to people that know you. Um, you're not afraid to get in people's grill, like especially with the sports stuff. You're, you're interacting with the players. You're, you're talking to them. You're having conversations and building these relationships. And a lot of times photographers are trying to hide in the corner and not be seen, but kind of it seems your approach, you're not afraid to like have a dialogue. Is that something you kind of always just have that confidence in yourself with like communicating with people you think? Yeah. And you know, when you say confidence, I never, I never thought about it in terms of I'm going to do this or I'm doing the players. My brother and I used to go to games. Like I told you when I met Brad's dad, we'd mm -hmm. go to practices every day when th this is when we were 10, 11 years old every day. And then after practice, we'd, we'd hang in the locker room, which you could do in those days in, in, if you're a little kid in colleges. Yeah. I remember sitting on the floor where guys were in the whirlpool, and they're talking about pussy. And we're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and we played also. So we always thought we were going to be players when we grew up. And playing all through college, high school and college, I've always approached the athletes as if no differently than when I played. They're players. We're players. It's, it's just like we're in high school or college. I was, I respected the guy, the guy, the great ones, but I also, in my own mind, it's like, this guy's my teammate. Yeah. You on a football team, you've got, college you've got 75 guys in the nfl you've got 55 or 60 there are some really cool guys that you can you know you can walk in and you can relate to yeah. and you can hang out and you can party and you know you and then there are other guys there's not a whole lot to say and then there's always one or two guys it's like hey you know what fuck you yeah. and vice versa uh, yeah and, I was, yeah I, I and it's, like, it's just like that I, I was actually interested in talking to you because obviously you're really well known. You've photographed some amazing teams, be it Joe Montana or some of those other baseball teams and whatnot. Um, how, how do you approach teams that 
are losing teams. They're, they're not winning. Um, are, are those teams still enjoyable for you to document? Do you find it harder to document than the, those winning teams? Um, how, how do you kind of approach that, I guess? You know, I've been really lucky because if you've got good relations with many of the guys on the team, mm -hmm. it, it, it almost doesn't matter. Um, some of the A's teams that sucked yep. were some of the funnest summers I've ever had, you know, on the road. I mean, we had great times. I mean, and you know what? When you win, it's certainly better. But in some respects, the more you win, there's a lot more pressure. Yeah. And then when you lose, it really, it, it really is bad. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, in the end, it's about relationships mm -hmm. and, and it's about hanging out and sports, especially, but even, you know, I found music was the same way. You know what? It's like never having to grow up. Mm. It's like being in high school. I mean, fuck, where else can you go where you can talk from 8.30 in the morning till midnight, sports, women, pussy, yeah. jokes. And, you know, you could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and making, you know, $8 million a year with $10 million in stock options, and it's pressure and it's really uptight. For me, fuck that. I'd rather do what I do. It's fun hanging with the players most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have felt like I've never had to grow up. And yeah. um, I mean, now, because the country's changed, it's a little more daunting because of what's going on and the politics. Yeah. I talk politics sometimes. Yeah, and you know, my dad always told me, you know, yeah. big shot. If you're smart, you never talk religion <laughs> sex or politics and i said god after that what is there to talk about <laughs> <laughs> yeah because like if you, you look at these days our president he's just like attacking uh media left and right like uh, how do you kind of view journalism the media these days uh because it is a it's a different beast like than before like even for me like when you log on again these channels it seems it's like it's more about the personalities and it's like clickbait journalism, a lot of it. And it's, it's more, it's, it's just hard because it's like, you don't, you can look at Fox, you can look at CNN and you can't, it's hard to tell like what to take seriously sometimes, especially when, when I grew up, there were the, th there were the networks yep. and it was certainly, it was journalism. Yep. Just like the, the newspapers, you know, if you're a journalist, you can't just write a story. You've got to you've got to check it. You've got to fact check it. And if you're writing for the New York Times, Boston Globe, Washington Post, um, L.A. Times, anything like that, you better check three and four facts before the editor is going to let you publish it. Yeah. With a lot of people now, oh, I I saw this on the internet. Yeah, the internet. You know what I say? Yeah, the internet, that's really, that's kind of like going to the lunchroom in high school and hearing people talk shit and coming back as if you, oh, so-and-so said this. Yeah. You know, you know, and it's all bullshit. But you know what? First of all, let's, let's get one thing straight. The country hasn't changed that much. There aren't that many smart people 
in this or any country. Most people aren't educated because they're in rural areas or they weren't really interested in school that much. And so they, they didn't really care. And you watch the news at night and it was Walter Cronkite, it was Edward R. Murrow, it was always the same thing. Now they have Fox News and they Rush Limbaugh, um, MSNBC. So whatever your worldview is, rather than finding out the facts, you can go find somebody to tell you what you want to hear the yeah. way you want to hear it. And you're mm -hmm. not interested in finding out the truth. And the fact is, many people, if not most people, everybody says they want the truth. The truth they say they want, in fact, is the truth they want to hear. Yeah. If you're married to somebody that's a little overweight and she, you're getting ready to go out, and she goes, oh, honey, do I look fat in this dress? And if she does, are you going to go, Fuck, I thought it was like Ted Klazuski going up to the plate because that's World <laughs> War Three. You go, oh, no, you look beautiful. Yeah. Most people want to hear the lie. I say most people demand the lies the politicians tell them. Mm -hmm. I mean, this country, most people, they want a lot of things as long as they don't have to pay. Yeah. As long as that is not going to be in their neighborhood. And that's left as well as right. I mean, I'm finding that out in San Francisco. Let's do something about the home, up, uh, but not here. Yep. You know, I don't want that battered woman shelter in my neighborhood or Pacific Heights with, with the wealthy people live. Yeah, I don't, I don't want the cell phone tower here. Or, yeah, I want these health things, but I don't want to. Am I going to have to pay? It's like, yeah. fuck yeah, you have to pay. Every, is, I remember Colonel Parker when he was Elvis's manager. He said at one point, he said, you know, sometimes people who come to me and say, don't worry, Colonel, you and Elvis don't have to pay. This is free. And I, I look at him and I say, well, if it's free, how much is it really going to cost me? Yeah. And that's kind of where we're at. And, and what you do and what I do, good luck making money now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how I was going to ask you this, like in terms of like, you came up at an age like you talked about it. It was like analog era where you're shooting film and then you're processing it pre-internet, pre-social media. Like, how do you view like all, like technology and social media? Like, uh, is is it all negative? Is it positive? Because like even that, even go back to the politics stuff. It's like a lot of people get their quote unquote news from like Facebook and like people just reposting memes with like facts of like that came from nowhere. There's like no source and people start to believe this stuff. I was just kind of interested in your perspective on like all these new technologies, I guess. Well, first of all, the, the one constant on the planet, Alex is change. Yep. Nothing remains the same. Um, it, it's always been that way with social media. I've never done Facebook. Um, people say why I said because you know what I don't want to I don't want to have a million people hit me up that I wouldn't even talk to in high school No, I don't care that their daughter's cat has leukemia or all the shit that people you know It's like so what and you only have X amount of time. Yeah. So I never got into Facebook 
my publisher pretty much pressured me to get into Instagram. And you know when I got when I get into Instagram initially, it was like falling down a well. Yeah. Um, because I was trying to connect with all the artists and the painters and the cool people. And initially I was spending three and four hours, you know, just looking at what people were doing. Mm -hmm. It was just like, oh shit. And that was great initially when you don't consider all the time it sucks up. Yeah. Twitter, it's basically a place to go talk shit with no consequences. Mm -hmm. Although I would, I wouldn't get on it. I mean, the players to this day still, you know, man, what's it, what are you going to get on Twitter? Yeah. Baseball, base, baseball players are actually really big on Twitter. I, I've noticed. Yeah. That. Yeah. I said, you know what? If I were on Twitter, <laughs> I would be fired and murdered on the same day. <laughs> right up. So, no. And you know what? It's, it's where we're at now. Um, and it's global. Yep. And I think it's literally rewiring our brains and people don't read much. Um, people have become much more image conscious. I mean, I look at some people's thing and every day it's like, you know, this picture, this beautiful person. And for the most part, people represent themselves is not who they are, but who they would like to be or yeah. who they think they are or who they'd like you to think they are. Yeah. And you've got to, you know, you've got to figure that out. Um, I'm glad I'm the age I am. I'd hate to be 17 or 19 and try to navigate that crazy minefield, both in terms of image and then what you say. But more importantly, like for what we do, mm -hmm. to try to make a living in an era that's been dominated by the corporations and Wall Street. And because of that, nobody gets paid except the shareholders and the people at the top. That is what's fueling all of this unrest, not just in this country, but on, on the planet. Yeah. Like, and it makes it hard for you or me to even do what we're doing because the other thing is the people that run all those platforms and run the teams yeah. and the leagues, they not only don't want to pay anybody for doing what you and I do, mm -hmm. they also want to control the message. They want to control what is put out yeah. and what you can shoot and how you can shoot it. And doing the, the way I started if I started that way now, I wouldn't last a week. Mm. Yeah, it's it's tough because, like, I know with the NFL, I, I'm not sure so much how it is with baseball, but I know NFL they have these things called like I think it's like LCCs, which is like live con live content creator, and I basically they probably pay these photographers a couple hundred bucks. You don't own your copyright, and like you said, like they can just do whatever they want with it, and you, you, you most of them. Good kids. Yep. I see what they're doing. Yep. I'm just going to say it. Yep. They suck. And the way I would have sucked at that age with a fucking iPhone or a shit camera um, and no supervision and not much money and not a whole lot of access. And they've got all these people down there doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know what? When I started out, I had a Nikon and a Nikromat 
Soligar lenses. I think I had a 200 lens. And I thought I was fucking Robert Rieger. I look back now, you know, I, I, mean, I thought, you know, I'm ready for Sports Illustrated prime time. I am so fucking good. <laughs> I look at that stuff now to be like, oh, no. Yeah. You know, it's like if you're running for office and everything's videotaped and somebody said, hey, Alex, check this out. This is you back at when you're 22 and you're like, oh, shit. Can I, can I buy that? Is this, I, I'll, how much do you want for that? Mm-hmm. I, want, I want to buy up all copies. Yeah. But they don't, you know, they don't care. They have enough people out there. They want to literally flood the zone. And, you know, in the end, I'm one of a very few photographers in sports that still owns his copyright. Yeah. Uh, I could not get a job working for teams now starting out if I didn't give, sign it over to them. And is that this, you feel like this, because like the relationships you've built with these organizations over the year, they kind of. Yeah, and I think, yeah, that, you know what, nobody'd say this, but I'm being a little harsh, but they're probably thinking, hey, he's almost dead, you know, he's not, <laughs> we don't have to. And hey, uh, listen, I'm laughing, but I also know, and I think you know, there's a bit of truth to it. It's like, yeah. fuck, he's 75, he can't, you know, we're not going to have to put up with his ass much longer. Yeah. Once he's gone, they'll never, nobody's ever going to do this shit again. Then they'll steal your shit and print it all over and not have to pay you shit, Michael. Well, you know what? I've told my son, I said, look, I have the copyright. Yep. I have this. That, that means something. But, you know, in the end, if they want to do what they want, then it's on you to get a lawyer and fight their five lawyers in their deep pockets. Yeah. That, I mean, the NFL has done that a number of times. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, listen, nothing's forever. No. Nope. Um, Walter Yost and I were talking about how we're, we've been so lucky. We, you know, we have shot and lived in basically a golden age certainly of sports photography initially in music too you know walter shot for atlantic records yeah i mean he never said anything then i saw someday some one a guy said hey your buddy this is his shot of aretha and i said wait a minute who walter he's like a teenager and he well he was in his 20s but he was you know there in new york and he shot zeppelin didn't like zeppelin but he i mean he he had some great stuff but here's the thing in those days you could both make money not a lot but you made some money yeah and you had access i mean i mean that's one of the reasons i did it i I felt like i was in the band Mm -hmm. and that was the only reason i did it really because the money wasn't that good and i i I always said hey you know i because of what i've been able to do and the experiences i've had and places i've gone and all of that I feel like I've never had to work a day in my life. And, and when, when I work at, well, like, but when I look at my bank account, I feel like I've never worked a day. In my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when, when do you feel like the, the change happened to the industry? Like you said, you never making tons of money uh, for the most part, but back then there, you could make a living. Was it, was it when the digital camera came out? Was it the internet? Um, because I, I look at it like, Back in the day when you're shooting film, like the barrier to entry was much higher because you actually had to like take the time to learn that craft. Whereas now 
People can just take pictures on their cell phones, a digital camera, you can just go on YouTube. So the barrier to entry is much lower than it was before. Um, but when did you feel like the, the business started taking a, a turn for the worse, I guess? I thought in the, I mean, when I actually realized it, as far as getting access and everything in, in, in music, it was in the late 70s, mm -hmm. early 80s, where the record companies, and you know, then it was like started to get big money and the groups started getting, had publicists. Yeah. And unless you were with the band, um, you could only shoot for three numbers. And um, with sports, I think it started changing about that time. Mm -hmm. um, I, was, I was lucky because I got in early on with the teams and the bands when you could do that. Yeah. And I was also lucky that I was in a place, you know, San Francisco, it was San Francisco, London, and New York were the music capitals of the world yep. when I started out. Um, Sports-wise, it was great because for baseball, you know, you put, had American and National League. Football, the 49ers. The 49ers were up and down, but they were good. I was lucky when Bill Walsh came in. He was a student of history. And I went to him and I said, you know, coach, what I'd like to do is I'd like to dock. I think you're going to do something really special here. And, and it's going to be history making. I'd like to shoot it as history, as a documentarian and document it from the inside out the way I do music. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when I first started and, and he said, well, okay, but what, what if you go too far? And I knew what he meant, but I said, well, coach, I'm going to try to be cognizant of staying out of the way and try to be as invisible as I can. But that being said, there may be times where I do go too far. All you have to do is look at me and I'll mm -hmm. get it. When I started out, I walk around, you know, I get to the locker room, get in game day with the players. I'd strip down. Um, to my jock, a half shirt. I'd be walking around. The first couple of weeks I'm doing it, guys are going, Z, what the fuck, man? <laughs> and then, and then, but I wanted to be like a player. Yeah. Because it was just like, it's just an extension of when I played. After two weeks, nobody, nobody even noticed. And, you, you know, you'd be like that. You'd talk to somebody, you'd tell a joke, you're, you know, and everybody's different. And you, you read people, mm -hmm. you know, you know who not to get in front of or, you know, most of the time and get ready for the game. I wore cleats and I, I approached it as I was playing. Mm. And I did the same thing in baseball. And because of that, and because I was able to do that with the A's as well as the 49ers, I could get these incredible pictures that most people didn't have the access to get people said well nobody can do it like you and i said well there are a lot of people that could probably get the pictures but part of it is getting the access the other thing is is once you have the access you have to you have to be able to navigate people mm -hmm. and uh, you know what i somebody said you got to give a class on that you can't give a class on that 
It's like you got to get the respect. Yeah, you know, and you, one, you know what? It's it's either who you are. Or who you, it's like dancing. Yeah, there could be three of us that could take dancing lessons, and one of us, and we'll all take the same lessons. One of us might be a pretty good dancer. The other would be like, okay. And the third guy's like, bro, sit the fuck down. <laughs> and then the the little guy that just took shop and is getting C's and D's, all of a sudden he's on the dance floor and he's just like, whoa! Everybody's like, circle and go, wow. That's kind of like this. Hitting's like that. Mm-hmm. Anything that you really excel in, I don't think you even know what your process is. Yeah. You just do it. You know, people say, uh-huh. when you when you were composing that picture, and it's like, no. Well, how did how do you do? I I just I don't know. I I just flow into it. I tr- I try to you know, see what's there and flow and talk to people. And, you know, usually it works out. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down like to personality, like everybody can learn the technical aspects of photography to a certain point, but uh, you are, you are who you are. Like some people have like an awkward personality. Some people are outgoing and some people can read the room and some people can't. It's not really, like you said, it's not a skill you can, I think you can get better probably over time, build confidence, but overall it's just like people are who they are and it's just one way or the other. It works for you or against you. Yeah. I mean, as good as I am with that, um, I'm not proud of this, but I suck in business. Yeah. Doing business. But you know, part of that is because I've never cared. Mm-hmm. M- money doesn't, and, I, and I'm not saying money doesn't mean anything to me. Of course it does. Yeah, but it, you know, getting a big check or getting money has never given me a hard on. It's like, oh fuck, thank yeah. you. I've got twenty thousand dollars. You know, it's yeah. like, oh thanks, great. Okay, what are we doing now, man? Let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like you're saying, like back in like the seventies, the San Francisco is a giant uh, music area. You had the Fillmore, uh, the Winterland, uh, uh, Winterland Ballroom, right? Yeah, it well, and they, you know, they used to have the ice capades there. Yeah. They had, they'd have fights. Yeah, um, yeah, Winterland, and then Family Dog, Chet Helms. What What was like a typical day in your life back then? Because like you're you're shooting music, but then you're shooting sports as well. Like, what was a typical day in your life like back then? There was no typical day, but <laughs> I mean, it could be uh, going going to shoot a group that night then the next morning getting up and going to the ballpark mm-hmm. getting to the ballpark smoking a joint in the parking lot going yeah. into the clubhouse bullshitting with the players and again now remember we're all the same age at that point yeah like the giants had people like the count and randy moffitt randy's sister was billy jean king yeah and they were all listen they were all doing the same things we were it's like somebody said to me oh you did drugs <laughs> and I'll go, uh, you didn't, where the fuck were you? Yeah. And I mean, drugs was marijuana, um, occasionally psychedelics, um, cocaine didn't come onto the scene until the early eighties, but when it did, I don't want to say everybody was doing it, but everybody was doing it in society. And it, it was football, baseball, basketball, law, music, entertainment. Anybody that had the money and the access did it. 
Yeah. And the only people that went to jail, and it's still like that, were poor people, black people, brown people. I remember going to um, a wedding reception in Pacific Heights, and it was a Sunday, and there were, there were a few players there, but it was mainly judges, doctors, um, lawyers, a lot of weed, a lot of coke. And I remember it hit me. I thought, wow, now tomorrow some of these judges are going to be sentencing poor people to fucking jail yep. for doing what everybody's doing here. Yep. And that's kind of been, that was, that was our society and, and, and the athletes and the musicians and the movers and the shakers, they mainly all mirror what's going on in their culture, mm -hmm. in their society. And the people that have always tried to toe the line, you know, the silent majority um, before Vietnam, the working class, they're the ones, the Pilgrim's Progress. You know, this is wrong. You're going to jail. You've broken the law. But meanwhile, I'm going to get drunk. Yeah. Vietnam kind of changed that because a lot of those people came back from Vietnam, fucked up, and that was the new norm. And dissent was the new norm. And that's really when the country started to change. Interesting. And did you kind of reach a certain point in your career? Like you said, like the music stuff, it seemed like a really fast paced life. Like you're saying like drug culture was going on. Um, did you kind of get to a certain point where you kind of just got like sick of that lifestyle or how did you kind of handle Not sick of it, but it was yeah. just, it was, um, you always like to think, I think most people do that whatever you're doing, you're in control. Mm -hmm. And you, you're not in control and at a certain point um, with if you're smoking too much weed or you're doing coke at a certain point, it's, it's going to get away from you. Yeah. Um, the same with alcohol, if you have proclivity to be an alcoholic, you know, through genetic or, you know, any number of ways. And I got to the point where it almost killed me and i was lucky i almost od'd and uh for me because i wasn't a straight up addict i had an epiphany it was like oh shit you know we've got a son and i can't do what i'm doing anymore the way i'm doing it unless i stop this yeah and i was i was lucky that i i was able to there were other people that OD'd. There were some people that it ruined their lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, to this day, Alex, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to go, oh, I really had great fortitude and I'm a strong kid. I think a lot of it was genetics and, and luck mm -hmm. um, or, or chance or destiny or whatever word you want to use. Yeah. I've, I've been blessed in that sense that I've, you know, I was able to basically ride the big wave and wipe out but not get killed yeah. and, and learn a lesson that's what life's about anyway it's yep. about learning from your mistakes mm -hmm. god knows we all make them yeah definitely and like these days like 
I mean, I've had drugs these days is this interesting thing because I've had one of my best friends growing up. He died from the prescription drug stuff, which is this like all over the place now. And it's just, I don't know, it just seems like with the prescription drug stuff, like uh, whatever people get addicted to that stuff, like Oxycontin and stuff, it's like, it's almost like a different perception people have on it now, it feels like, because it's like, oh, I'm getting prescribed it or something. Um, how do you kind of view that stuff these days? I guess it's different than back then, or maybe it's not. I don't know. No, I mean, it, you know, I mean, the prescription drug thing in this country got way out of control. And I mean, when you think about it, don't, don't even get me started on this because it's, yeah, that that's the Sackler and the big farm. Yeah. They've always done that. That's tobacco is the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, how in a country that prides itself in being Christian and godlike allow corporations to basically make billions on people, not just in this country, but all over the world on shit that's bad for you. Yeah. And, and then try to put it back on the person. Well, nobody's twisting their arm to make them do it. Now, now the opioid thing, that was, that was really bad. Yeah. And that, that's still resounding. Here's the other thing. If the American dream was so great, why are so many people in all walks of life fucked up on alcohol, on drugs, prescription, and otherwise? Because all the stuff that they're offered that is supposedly going to bring you happiness yeah. doesn't. Yeah. You know, when you, when you finally get that big house and that big car and the, the job that everybody says, oh, God, boy, you've got, your, you've got the great gig and you've got a beautiful family. Yeah. And, 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 and you're thinking, fuck all of this. I don't have any of this. Mm -hmm. Nobody's really happy because real happy doesn't come from things. It comes from an inner peace, which is what religion is supposed to be about, but yeah. in fact isn't. And we've, I mean, we've lost our way a long time ago if we ever knew where we were going in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole, the pe listen, the people that founded this country, the pilgrims, the people that came to America to seek religious freedom, they were actually run out of England because they were religious fanatics, yeah. far right, fringe freaks. And so they came over and brought slaves and murdered the Native Americans and then talked about God. Oh, hey, you know, manifest destiny, westward expansion. You know, hey, yeah. sorry, sorry, you're a savage. We're going to have to kill you and take your gold and take your land. But hey, our missionaries here to give you the Lord of Jesus. Yeah. And it's, that's kind of, I mean, that, it's very simplistic, but that's kind of the story here. Yeah. And then, and then we've twisted it the way Trump and his people twist their alternative facts. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Like, and like to go back to like the technology stuff, like in, in one sense, we're more connected than ever. But then in other sense, I feel like disconnected, like, I remember even because when I was in high school, I, I didn't even have a cell phone yet. They were just starting to come out. And 
there was no texting. So if you wanted to make plans with your friends or whatever, you'd call people, you'd talk to people more. Like, do you feel like as a society, are people more or less connected than before? Like even you, like, like we've been texting back and forth, setting this up. Like when you look at your life before, do you feel like your relationships were stronger than they are now with like tech texting and technology or what do you think? Oh no, no. I mean, I, I, I'd rather, I talk to people most of the time. Yeah. And I usually I'll say at a certain point, call me in capital letters. Yep. No fucking text or email. And the reason being, first of all, it takes a lot longer to do that. Yeah. And you lose context. You lose. I mean, I could text you Mm -hmm. or email you. Fuck you. (laughs) Now, when you get it, if you don't know me, a lot of it's going to depend on where your head's at when you get it and what you're projecting onto me. But if I, if you know me, or even if you don't know me, and we're talking face-to-face, yep. you can see by my body language and my eyes and my aura and my energy when I talk what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, on the phone, you know, there's a difference between, <laughs> hey, fuck you, <laughs> or, oh, fuck you, man. Yeah, or, yeah. you know what, fuck you. <laughs> and, and that's all... And it's like that. And and I'm generalizing, but so many people under 40 now, if you have to have a conversation with them, if there's a problem, yeah. they're like, oh, oh, no. Yeah, because it's like everything's done online. Like people buy everything online. They get their groceries online. They And there's not even that like interaction. I And I even notice it myself. Like I, it's like, oh, it's, you almost feel like, oh, am I bothering this person for calling them? It's like, because everything is like text. And I even find like my grandparents even, it's like, you don't even realize it's happening to you. It's like this, the way, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, society is, it's just different, I guess. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I guess like with the baseball and football stuff, uh, like I say, you shot a lot of amazing teams. Um, do you have like, a favorite like baseball or football one do you prefer shooting more um do you feel like you approach them uh differently or the same i i approach everything differently i mean each thing is its own thing and and i i somebody says what would you rather shoot whatever i'm into that's fun at that moment that's what i'd rather shoot yeah. and it's hard i mean some I played both sports. They're very different in headspace and, and, and the people that play them and, and how you have to amp yourself up or prepare. But, you know, at a high level, it's fun. Yeah. And it, it's going – I mean, the big thing is getting there and being in the environment mm-hmm. with the players before the game it's it harkens back in many respects to some place you you've always been to until you graduate from high school yeah and then it's something that seems further and further away and so it's very comforting in the locker room in the clubhouse um it's one of the few places where people really from all walks of life 
that in many respects would never come together yeah unless they were playing and not everybody blends well but you you get along and it's kind of a melting pot mm. and boy especially the way things have been in the last 10 15 years in the country it's for the most part it's like going to church it's it's home and whatever ever problems you're having in your personal life or your business life when i walk through that door into the clubhouse it's another world and it's like home it's like home base yeah because i think like i mean i've shot some baseball obviously not to the level that you have or whatnot but i think would you agree that like being a photographer is a very like solo job it's very like independent so it's like kind of you're like almost a part of these teams is like that team environment something is that part of what you enjoy you think oh yeah i mean I, I see some of your your dugout shots and all that i mean you're in there i mean there are jokes there's guys going back and forth and it's it's a whole other cool mm -hmm. environment yeah and you i won't say you can't get that in any other place i'm sure you can mm -hmm. but in an office environment it's not like that no. it's different yeah in retail and then there are all these you know now more and more hr is gonna you know you can't do that <laughs> right? you know he's he said this i feel threatened and it's like what yeah yeah you know in clubhouse or the locker room you know at worst you throw down so yep. somebody you know threatened you'll fuck you motherfucker yep. and somebody else will say something and it's you know it's more real it's like when we were kids yeah for sure um what do you remember about shooting ricky henderson because like for me like that guy was just such an electric player uh big personality um is there anything that kind of sticks out in your mind from uh, photographing that guy i still i mean he's one of my best friends and i i see ricky i mean that's what i i miss not seeing ricky since uh first end of the first week of March. I would always try to sit next to him, in front of him, behind him, across the aisle, because even if he's talking about the weather, he cracked me up. And he's, you know what? He's kind of a renaissance man. He's into a lot of things. Mm. And um, he's a jokester. Um, his Rickyisms are just <laughs> unbelievable. Ricky and Henderson. He, 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 I mean, I mean <laughs> he, when he gave his Hall of Fame speech, all time all my favorite hall of fame speech of all time well you know what he took elocution lessons for three months yeah you could tell he worked on it well and, and you know what <laughs> he said it's well how to, how to sound <laughs> i said listen you killed it but i said it's just me you didn't have to do that you you being the way you always are would have been just fine yeah and i said that's the beauty of you being you. And and that's, you know what? He's still like that. Yeah. I mean, he comes in probably six or seven times a year where he'll be with the team three or four days at a time. Wow. And he's basically giving guys tips, you know, base running, talking baseball with them during the game. Pre-game, he's in there playing cards. And he's always, he's always taking people because he knows his cards. Yeah. And I remember, um, God, who was from Cuba? Kendris Morales was with us for about two and a half months. Mm -hmm. And so Ricky's playing cards and Kendris there. And Kendris beat him 
twice, two days in a row. And walked away, and Kendra's like, oh, you know, I see you tomorrow. Ricky's going, damn. And I said, wow. I said, you're setting him up, right? You're just hustling him. He said, no, no, man. He said, I'm trying to beat him. He said, yeah. Well, you know them Cuban guys? They're always, they're they're always playing dominoes and cards, man. They're good in that shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious, man. Um, you you photographed the the infamous uh, the 1989 World Series where the earthquake happened. Um, what do you remember about that day? I've got a whole proof sheet right before we're in the clubhouse, just messing around. We were up two games to nothing. We knew, you know, I mean, we were the best team in baseball that year. We were gonna we would have beaten the 27 Yankees, and we were, we were going to beat the Giants. Yeah. So. We're getting ready to go. I remember Stan Javier grabbed my camera and took about three or four shots of me. And then Hosey said, I'm out. And I said, I'm with you. So I grabbed the camera and I've got shots of, you know, I'm right behind him and he's walking up that long tunnel at Candlestick and you come out, not in the dugout, but you come out where the right field bullpen is. And we came out and we, we'd taken about five steps and the fans down the line, you know, we're, giant fans and they started giving Hosey shit and yelling at him hey hot dog and Hosey stopped and put his arms out you know like hey and all of a sudden it sounded like three jets were coming literally right over the top of the stadium and it sounded like damn and all of a sudden and you know what that sound was that was the plates of the earth six miles below yeah. And that deafening. And you you lose all all track of time, place, space. I remember you're just kind of almost out of body. And I remember look and Jose kind of like fell back against me. And I could see the upper deck between home and third going up and down. I remember the scoreboard and left was just going crazy. And then it stopped and Ho- Jose said, uh, Oh man, what was it? I've got a fucking migraine now. And I said it was just an earthquake. And he said, Oh, and so and then there was a big roar that went up from the crowd, like, whoa. Damn. And he and I continued to walk up the right field line toward our dugout, which was on the third base side. And we ran into Joe Morgan, Willie Mays, and two riders from New York in the first base coaching box. And Willie was just babbling. He said, man, I told you something's wrong. I'm going to get out of here, man. I don't like this. And walked away. And I said, I turned to Joe and I said, wow, can you fucking believe this? And he said, hey, man. He said, Willie's been saying something's not right for the last half hour. Because that that was like Indian summer. That day was like 85, 86 degrees for October. Still warm. Completely quiet. You didn't even hear birds. Weird. And Willie, in retrospect, sensed something is almost like, you know, like animals can, they say animals can pick up when an earthquake's coming. And it's really a metaphysical something. Willie picked it up and walked away. And so then Hosey and I continued on. And then Hosey went toward our dugout and I saw Faye Vincent. And they had special, like, MVP seats between the Giants dug out and home plate on the first base side. And I started toward Vincent and he's, you know, he stood up and was yelling at me. So I was taking pictures and he's, and, and I said to him, I said, wow, how about this shit? 
And he goes, well, you know, you folks had that guinea hen that jumped out in right field the other night, but I think this beats it. Jeez. <laughs> and, then, and we, you know, we still thought, okay, now we're going to play. No. And it took about a half an hour for people to realize, you know, they had transistor radios and a few people had little TVs that this was an earthquake and it was a bad one. And then we, we saw smoke beyond the upper deck and right field and that was from the city mm. and um and then you started getting the word and um you know no world series for 10 days yeah it was pretty I, 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 it was before i was born but i i've watched the footage and it did seem like a pretty wild day it's like the chances of that happening it, it, it's crazy yeah uh, um ricky was i remember ricky like we got back to the clubhouse and all the lights were off and I didn't want to go in the clubhouse because by that time I knew what was going on. Yeah. And I said, uh, I said, hey, where were you when it hit? He said, oh, I was still in my locker. <laughs> he said, that shit, he said, that shit started happening. He said, dust started going. And so the little lamps going back and forth. He said, Parkway, which is Dave Parker. He said, Parkway, and I, I, told, I told Parkway. I said, motherfucking earthquake. <laughs> we ran out of the parking lot, and all of a sudden Parkway goes, oh, shit. I gotta go back in there. I said, he said, I said, what do you mean? He said, I got all my jewelry above in my locker. <laughs> Parker went back and got his jewelry. <laughs> oh my god. Your Rick, your Ricky Henderson impersonation is amazing. <laughs> oh man. Um what do you what's your what's your feeling on the, the season this year? Like um you think they're gonna play ball? Are they gonna play in their home stadiums. Um, what do you think is going to happen with the uh, baseball season this year? What's your gut feeling? I don't know. I mean, I quit paying attention because every day. Yeah. I mean, I kind of pay a little attention, but not much, because no matter what they come out with, that's the plan for today. I, if they don't get something together by the second week of July. Yeah. I'd say the season's done. There's yeah. no minor leagues. Um, they can't play in there. I mean, I, when I say they can't, I'm obviously giving you my opinion. I don't know any more than you do. I mean, yeah. I know what I read, what I see in the, in the paper. I, I can tell from all the, the scouts I've talked to from different people in baseball. I've had a couple players call me and say, man, what do you hear? And I go, Hey, the fact that you're asking me what I hear, <laughs> that means, you know, no one. Not not, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's weird. Like I don't, uh, I mean, I get it. People want to play, but they're like talking about having like an electronic umpire. And then like, I don't know. It just seems, I don't know even know if I really want to watch it. It is like the, the fans, it's a, it, I would say it's a big aspect of the game, like, you know? Yeah. No, it is. I mean, it's uh, – if players have to sit in the stands, if anybody that – if, you know, if you call the bullpen, the, as soon as you hang up the phone, you've got to clean the phone. They've yeah. got to clean the bullpen phone with yeah. disinfectant. Uh, you can't spit. There are no bat boys. Um, you've got to be six feet apart. I mean, all that stuff. It's not baseball. I mean, I don't even I – I don't know if I'll be able to go in the clubhouse. Yeah. Or be on the field. Or, I mean, and, and I, I'm saying that. It constantly changes. Um, I know that globally, above and beyond sports, entertainment, at some point 
even if they haven't gotten the vaccine, they're going to have to start doing things. And again, I haven't been in any of these rooms, but yeah, I guarantee you all over the world, they're having the conversation of, you know what? Fuck this. We've got to get back to work the way a general and his generals do when they're planning a battle going, yeah, okay. In order to do this, we're going to have to, we're probably going to lose 30,000 people. Yep. And we'll have reinforcements over here. You can't stop the world for 12 to 18 months. Yeah. It's just... Until a vaccine's ready. Well, yeah, because that... as it is, if they start up tomorrow, Alex, yep. this could be 10 years. And this could bring down many governments, <laughs> including our own. Mm-hmm. We tell people run out of money. Yeah. Be a lo- and a lot of poor people are going to run out of money. They're not going to want to hear a lot of bullshit. Yeah. And it... I, yeah. I, and see, this, this is what I think is coming. And what is going to happen? I don't know. I'm not worried because no amount of worry or stress is going to change anything. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I can do to prepare. Yeah. Even, you know what? Even if you're rich, where the fuck are you going to go? Yeah. Even if you're rich, you still can get, yeah, you still get sick. You still, uh, like, shit, even I was in the grocery store last week and it's been like two and a half months and like, I still like, uh, a lot of the shelves are still empty and it, it's like, who knows what All it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's it, like you said, like, it's still early. Like, that's the thing. Like, it's been two and a half months, I get it, but it's still so early in the process of like what's going on. Well, as Yogi Berra once said, <laughs> it's getting it's getting late early. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah, know. I mean it's and, and it's the economics and, and where we go from here. I mean, to me, this is a perfect opportunity to crush Wall Street. No more fucking stock market. It's nothing but a glorified casino. Yeah. Fuck the banks. I I put I just wipe out all student debt. I know that's a bitch to the people that have had to repay and have repaid. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, I paid mine. But it it's it's not right. They're gonna have to start paying more people a livable wage. I'm tired of most people having to work two and sometimes three jobs to break even while the two and 3% get richer and richer. Yeah. Um, You know how many people in this country have a college education, a BA? I I looked at six. Yeah. 36. Yeah. And that's one of the big things why Trump has the base he has. They're basically those people resent educated people that make all the decisions. Um, We almost have a caste society. And, you know, the irony for them is they hate com. What are you, a communist? Are you a socialist? You know what I always say? Yeah. Yeah. What what are you, capitalist? And people go, "What, what do you mean? Yeah. And I go, how's that working for you? Another thing, like people don't realize, there's already a lot of socialized systems already set up. Like the thank you, 
like like the fire department, your police department, the, the reason that your roads don't have fucking gigantic boulders in them. Like if you go to other countries, like communist countries, you drive down the fucking road, there's just like giant holes. They don't fix that shit. Well, you know what? It's starting to happen here though, because, and after this last stimulus, yeah. we won't be able to borrow money from any other country now. And that means things like getting a car loan, that'll be huge. Getting a house loan, fuck, forget it. And do you know who loans this country the most money? China. Yeah, by far. And this yeah. cocksucker is like going on and on about it. China, China. <laughs> and my thing is hang him high. That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, the crazy, yeah it's cra like the craziest thing. Like you're saying like unemployment right now, most people – I was reading are making more money on unemployment than they would at their actual job. Like that's like fucking crazy. I know. Well, Matt, you know what? And now the Republicans in Congress are worried about that. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's legitimate. And there yeah. are a lot of people, they don't want to go back to the job they had. Yeah. Because they're making more now. Yeah. But then you know what? You want to fix that? give people a living wage yeah exactly that's the point and like, i'm not you know i'm not a communist if you work harder than me you get more money if you have a better idea you'll get even more money but at a certain point no more money we're capping it big farm can't continue to rip everybody off now on the same token um let's say you're gonna have single payer health care mm -hmm. you have the government between the big companies and the worker telling you can make this you can make this you can make a profit but only so much this is what you're going to get you're not going to get more shut the fuck up yeah. and i mean the, you know what the hardest thing is it's our species yeah we've been very tribal from the beginning we continue to be um we're contentious um you could have a combination of Jesus Christ, Allah, and Buddha take over this country at the end of the election. And he'd have half the country on his ass almost immediately because mm -hmm. what he's doing to try to fix things and make things equal is going to piss people off. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I don't know. It's easy to see what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Fixing it, you'd almost have to be a benevolent autocrat. And yeah. just say this is the way it's going to be. Oh, you don't agree? You're you're gone. Um, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's tough. I mean, like even your own city, like in the last, like you're saying, like the technology boom in the last twenty years in San Francisco. Like, what's been the biggest thing you've seen change within your city? Uh, does it still have the personality that you grew up with, or like, what's the biggest change to San Francisco? You think in the last twenty years? That you don't. It's different. It's now money. Uh, mo I mean, you have to be upper middle class to live here, mm -hmm. or you've got to be young and three and four people living in a in a flat yep. instead of just one. I mean, I'm very lucky in the sense that I've got a I've got a cool landlord and rent control. Yep. Um, other people, I mean, if I paid market value for this, I wouldn't be living here. Oh yeah. Um, and a lot of, not just California. I, I mean, not just San Francisco, LA is like this, Portland, Boston, yeah. Boston, Boston too. Yeah. Yeah. Boston. Um, any, any Nashville is getting that way. 
Mm -hmm. Any city with tech or money, and, and that's the thing. And, and that's what we've always been really about. Yeah. You know, when people say, oh, this is America, democracy and God, I laugh. <laughs> you know, the real gods in this country are athletes, entertainers, celebrities. Mm -hmm. um, the people that actually go to church, not many. Not just here. The West is like that. In fact, you know who goes to church and buys into religion on this planet? Mm -hmm. Mainly poor, uneducated people. Yeah. There's a lot of myth. Yeah. And, you know, you say that and people get really upset, their belief system. And a lot of the people that get upset don't even fucking go to church. Or they go Christmas, you know, they get, but that's their, you know, their don't talk about Jesus or don't talk about Allah or I'll kill you. Yeah. Or it's like, bro, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. It's a wild world, man. I, I try to stay hopeful, you know, put one foot in front of the other, but yeah, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Oh. Yeah. No, I mean, that's why I look doing what we do. We can pursue the, hopefully the fun parts of life. Or if you're a photojournalist, you know, somebody like Knockway or, Hetherington, you can shoot war zones or mm -hmm. the opium crisis. You can try to put your camera, you can hold up the mirror and you yep. can reflect yep. on what's going on in society. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, I, I was interested in talking to you. I saw you went to Tokyo last year. You guys shot, uh, I don't know if it was opening day, but it was like one of the early games. Uh, you went, I believe you went and shot some baseball out there, if I, if I saw it correctly on your Instagram. Yeah, no, we shot. We opened the season there. Yeah, was, we played. We played two games with uh, teams in the Japanese league. It was you know kind of like spring training, and then we opened up with the Mariners. Two the first two games of the season that actually counted in the schedule. Oh, was that the game Ichiro? That was like his final game. That was his final game. Wow, had you been to Japan before? What was kind of your overall experience there? I guess. Yeah, no, I. It was the third time I'd been to Japan with the A's, and I'd been to Japan three times with the Niners, twice to Tokyo and once to Osaka. Mm. And um, I, I loved it. I mean, it's a totally different culture, and that's that's the beauty of. It. Yeah, I heard at the at the games if they hit a home run ball, if someone catches it, you actually there's like people that come and they take it back. I guess. You know, somebody said that. I know they have they have rooting sections like you're at a college football game. Yeah. People get jacked up. Yeah, as I saw, it's almost like a, like a European uh, soccer match. Like the, the crowds are like cheering and chanting. Uh, it seemed like, yeah, people get really into the baseball over there. Well, you know, the first time I saw Premier League was mm -hmm. in 1971. And I'd, I'd never, never gone to – I mean, they call it football there, but I thought not football, it's soccer. And, um, I saw Arsenal at the old stadium. And in those days, it was crazy. It was like going to seeing boxing at the Olympic in LA where two Mexican fighters were fighting. It yeah. was all male. Um, everybody drinks hard. I mean, the police have to keep fans apart. Guys are brawling. They have mounted police afterwards because let, let's say they're playing Leeds and Leeds loses. Yeah, the the crowd will be smashing windows and cutting up the tube seats with knives afterwards. <laughs> uh, I, my first match, I was just like, "Oh shit!" 
this is incredible. It was kind of like seeing my, the first time I saw hockey, I saw the Rangers and the Bruins at Boston Garden in 1965. My roommate was from Newton. Yeah. And there were there were fights at the garden in the stands, people throwing squid and light bulbs out on the ice. <laughs> and and, I, and the, there was hockey too. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Hockey, hockey seems like one of the hardest sports to photograph. I've never shot it, but it seems like incredibly difficult because you're this kind of like limited to where you can be. Yeah. You can't, you can't be too many places, but we, you've got to set up a couple of remotes and it's an acquired taste. I think, you know, if you played hockey yeah. as a kid, if you grew up in the Midwest or the, the Northeast, you can, you can get into it. I, yeah. I've never really shot it. I think I shot one game. Mm -hmm. I've gone to a few. Yeah, um, I liked it, but it was you know not like baseball or football or or boxing. That I, I loved boxing back in the day. Yeah, um, I, I I'm I was really excited to talk to you about. Um, I'm sure you get asked about it a lot, but uh, the closing of Winterland, probably my, my one of my favorite albums of all time, The Grateful Dead. Uh, what do you remember about that night? Because to me, I still listen to that album all the time. It just seemed like such, I, I believe, like the Blues Brothers opened up. Um, what do you remember about that night? And like what kind of made Winterland like such a special venue, you think? Well, Winterland was great because of the, the, the groups that played there, mm -hmm. and whether it be the Stones or Jimi Hendrix, um, Quicksilver Messenger Service, The Dead. I mean, I saw so many shows there. That night, the last night of Winterland, I was on assignment for Rolling Stone, but I got there early and I hung out with Bill Graham for a while, was taking shots of Bill, the crowds around this, the, you know, Winterland, and then went home, picked up Kristen and came back. And I remember um, we split a cap of acid. <laughs> we split it because I wanted to be. So I shooting. wanted to be able to do a semblance of what I was there to do. <laughs> and I remember it was crazy backstage because, you know, the Blues Brothers, all of their friends came from Saturday Night Live. Wow. So it was almost like a cast party. And I remember in one of the dressing rooms, there was this big, like, aluminum-type salad bowl, except it was filled with – it looked like a pound of blow. Jesus Christ. And everybody was doing coke. And I remember people started getting greedy. First, yeah. people were tearing off the heads of matchbooks and doing like, you know, half gram hits. And girls were like pouring out their makeup and their little makeup kits and like scooping coke in. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, like a run on the banks. Yeah. And um, then when the dead came on, I remember Bill came down from the back of Winterland on a long, on a, on a wire. But he was riding a giant joint. <laughs> Rest his father time. <laughs> and came all the way down to the stage. And when he hit the stage, I mean, the dad had, God, I'm trying to think of his name. He lived in Bolinas, but he was like an alchemist. Yeah. He had these little powdered things of like, not flash powder, but little, you know, blue and th they explode. And the dead started playing. And as, as the night wore on, I remember by two o'clock, 2.30, John Cipollina, Quicksilver came out. Ken Kesey had this special thing that they put on the stage. I mean, it was just, it was a great, great party. Mm. And we ended up, I think we, it was still going 
we left about 4.30. We were starting to come down a little bit. And I obviously, there were, there was nothing more to shoot. Yeah. There probably was, but I mean, yeah, done. It was uh, it was a magic night. Yeah, because had you photographed the dead a lot prior to that? Oh yeah, I mean, and the dead were the dead were like a lot of the the music trips in the city at the time. It was so much more than just music. Mm-hmm. It was lifestyle. It yep. was culture. It was it was everything. Yeah, because their fans, like the diehard fans, the Deadheads, they they traveled with that band. It wasn't just like a lot of those people. It wasn't just they coming to your city. Like they would, they would just travel travel the country, just kind of following them, pretty much. Hey, man, I'm looking for a miracle, man. Do you have a ticket for me, bro? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, and then uh, I know talking to Brad. Uh, in the last, just la- I think last year, you guys uh, worked on a book. It was, I believe, you, Brad, uh, a writer uh, named Matt, uh, Matt Macalco. Oh, Miyoko. Yeah. Oh, Miyoko. Uh, the Dwight Clark, the Dwight Clark book. Yeah, Letters to Eighty Seven. I was kind of curious, like, how that book come together. Um, what was kind of your guys' goal with putting that whole thing together? Because it was a very interesting book. That was that was mainly uh. Kirk Reynolds that used to be the PR director of the 49ers. Now he's, he does everything from ESPN to, um, I mean, he has, he wears so many hats. Well, he got that together. They started having lunches when Dwight, you know, went public with the fact that he had ALS and there'd be lunches about every three or four weeks Initially, he was living in Capitola, which is right outside of Santa Cruz. And Kirk Reynolds would get three or four or six, you know, former teammates together. And we'd have lunch and he'd have Brad shoot it. Yeah. And Brad would shoot the luncheons. Um, we'd, all, we'd all get together, tell stories, tell jokes. Um, and at a certain point in time, and Brad could probably tell you more than I would, I think he and Kirk decided maybe they could do something with this. And Matt Mayoko, who is the 49ers beat writer, he, he put it out to fans. How about everybody writing in on where they were when Dwight made the catch from yeah. Joe? Yep. And there were thousands of people that wrote in. And there were some incredible letters at a certain point between Kirk, Matt, Brad, and the publisher that had done a couple books with Brad on the Giants winning the pennant in 2012 and 2014. Hmm. They decided they'd do this book. And that was the nexus of it. And everything was donated to the Golden Heart Fund and um, the ALS Foundation, you know, some people that, that uh, Dwight wanted the money to go to. And the letters, the letters were inc- incredible. I mean, they could have done another book on the letters, but between the letters the fans wrote, Brad's shots of all the different people at all the different luncheons, mm. and then they interspersed those with my shots of Dwight from his career with the 49ers that was the nexus of that book 
Yeah, it was pretty amazing because this kind of reading those letters, I bought the book and it just really kind of shows you what sports kind of means to a community. Um, it means something different to everyone. And it was just kind of here, really interesting to hear everyone's perspectives. Um, obviously, Dwight Clark, most famously known for the catch, the 1981 NFC Championship game. Um, but what do you remember most about Dwight Clark, I guess? I mean, I remember Dwight when he first showed up. Yeah, uh, his rookie season um, with Joe, and he was one of the nicer guys. I mean, he was a Southern gentleman, and uh, the great thing about Dwight, even after the catch, um, which made him famous for ten lifetimes in San Francisco, yeah, he never changed. He was always the same down home home guy. He and Joe always hung out together. They were pranksters. They were good looking. Um, and to have something like that happen to somebody really in the prime of his life cut down, it was, yeah. it was sobering. Yeah. No, it was, it was amazing to see the photos and like even this, like you're saying stuff Brad shot, um, kind of seeing everyone kind of come together and support him. Um, it, it was a really amazing book. I'll, I'll, I'll link it in the when I release the podcast. Definitely, people should check it out. A um, couple more questions. I'll let you go. Um, uh, another 49ers thing. I was kind of curious, like um, with Colin Kaepernick. Um, what do you remember about that day um, when, when he knelt? Um, was it something that did the whole team already kind of know that was going to happen? Um, what was kind of your response to the overall reaction after the fact? I guess. You know, the day, the first time he knelt, I didn't know about it until after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, I think he was kind of behind. And the next game, we were going to San Diego. And I and by that time, there was a lot of publicity locally about it, and it was starting to pick up nationally. And I knew exactly why he had knelt. Yep. He, had, he, he articulated it very well. And... It wasn't an affront to America and the flag. It wasn't an affront to all cops. It was yep. to bring attention to the bad cops and to what was happening to not just African Americans, but people of color. Yep. And it was that that was what the protest was all about. And I both understood it and supported him. Mm. And I made a point from that game on, I left the locker room with him. I remember we went onto the field and it was San Diego. So it's, you know, there's a Marine base there, Navy base there. Mm -hmm. It's, it's that kind of a town. Yeah. And there were people that were yelling stuff out, but you know, you've got to be a journalist. You, you just keep quiet and, and shoot. I thought, at that time, what he did took a lot of courage. From then on, it almost took on a life of itself. I remember Detroit, I think Pence showed up and Pence left. I mean, it was like, come yeah. on. Yeah. We went crazy. to Buffalo. People were yelling stuff out. And it was, you know, really blue collar. And you could really see the rift in the country. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I thought what he was doing 
was as courageous in its own way as what Jackie Robinson did breaking the color barrier. I thought it took a lot of courage. I supported him. Um, I got into some heated battles with people on Instagram about it. And, you know, that's when I discovered there's no articulating with people like that. You're either for him or against him. No amount of logic is going to convince you. It's a mindset. And that's when I knew, you know, our country is probably more divided now mm -hmm. than it ever has been, maybe even right than it was right before the Civil War. I had people say to me, wow, you've seen a lot in your time. This must, re this re must remind you a lot of when you're in college in Vietnam. And I go, oh, no, this is much deeper, much worse. We've, we've just gone much further down the road now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, um, like, you look at now, like, you can go online and the, the dialogue, not everybody, but there's a large group of people that are like, they don't even want to wear a mask going to the store because their whole point is like, oh, you're infringing on my civil liberties. But it's like, you also have the liberty to peacefully protest. So I don't, it's like, they want it one way, but they don't want it the other. So it's just like, it's confusing, you know? No, it's, you know, it's our species. I yeah. mean, most of the problems on the planet, you, you, you look at communism, capitalism, socialism, they all have pluses and minuses. You know what fucks all of them up? Men. Yeah. The species. Yeah. As a species, we're tribal to a fault. Um, religion and nationalism are two things that are supposed to be about uniting mm -hmm. and bringing people together when in fact they're really about dividing they're about divisions and religion whether you're muslim christian buddhist jewish it's all the same your god whatever you may call him really is a god of love mm -hmm. But the leaders of those religions, for the most part, or people that would try to hijack the religions, tell you, no, this is what we say this book means. And if you don't buy into it, you're not saved. And we may kill you. Yeah. And how about a little money? And it's yeah. like, how, how insane is that? Yeah. And nationalism is basically like high school. Be true to your school. Hey, mm -hmm. my country is going to kick your country's ass. We're great, and you suck, <laughs> and it's it's insane. Yeah, you know we're all, regardless of the color of our skin, or the language we speak, or how we choose to worship or or not worship. We're we all should want the same things. Basically, a roof over our heads and enough food to provide for our families with dignity, mm -hmm. and we're doing just the opposite. And it's, and, and we're destroying the planet in the meantime. I mean, you know, the irony is most of the, the animals are disappearing. We're next. I mean, yeah. we really think we're not going to, this isn't going to happen to us. And guess what? Even though the, the oceans have been polluted in the air, the earth will always be here. We won't. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, 
Yeah, for sure. I guess to wrap up, I mean, you, you've seen a lot, you've accomplished a lot. Um, what's kind of got you excited going forward, like photographically or just anything like what, what's next for you, man? Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that appointment with the undertaker, man. <laughs> and then moving into that next lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what? I, I'm always anxious to see what's going to happen next. Yeah. Both in terms of my personal life and the life of the country, um, how the next part of my journey photographically, what, what's going to happen with sports or, or if I stop, if sports as you and I have known it doesn't exist or I can't shoot it the way I've shot it for, you know, 45 years anymore. Yeah. Then what? I don't know, but you know what? I'm, I'm actually looking forward to whatever comes next. Mm. I'm excited about it uh, because there's nothing more incredible than being alive on the planet and being able to live. I mean, you and I are, I hate to use the word blessed, but we're blessed. Yeah. I mean, there are people on this, on this place that would trade their best day for your worst and know they ripped you off. Mm. We've, we've been very fortunate to have been born when we've been born, where we've been born and to have been able to see and experience the things we have. And, and you know what, as much as I bitch and moan about this country, yep. I'm still able to speak my mind. There are a lot of places there'd be a knock on my door and they'd pick me up and that'd be it. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, one of my friends, one of the ballplayers from Venezuela, we were talking about, he goes, you know, Poppy, in my country, I said, yeah, 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 I know. There'd be a knock on my door and they'd grab my ass and throw me in the truck and take me to the soccer stadium. And he goes, no, man, you wouldn't make it to the soccer stadium. They'd shoot your fucking ass on the truck and dump you. Damn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, uh, it's the truth. But uh, anyways, Michael, man, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. It was a real pleasure talking to you and everything. Um, look forward to seeing more of your work. And uh, well, Alex, when you come, when you come to San Francisco, I don't know when this when this uh, pandemic uh, calms down. I guess. <laughs> hey, you'll, you're always welcome here in Pandemicville. <laughs> yeah, man, I'll I'll be out there. I've never been to I've been to the Giants Stadium. I've never been to Oakland A's game, so I have to get out there. Oh yeah, no, you'll, you'll, you know, you can hang at the cage and, uh, I'll make sure you're there when Ricky's there. Oh, Ricky Henderson. I'll have Ricky regale <laughs> you with a few stories. I'll right. say, Ricky, this guy thinks he can beat you in cards. Right on. Well, <laughs> let's do it. All right. Thanks, Michael. Alex, listen, let's stay in touch, man. This has been a real pleasure. So there you have it. That was the Michael Segaris interview. I uh, just want to thank Michael so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It was a real pleasure talking to him about everything he's kind of documented and accomplished over the course of his photography career. Um, just a really amazing photographer who's photographed so much. Um, definitely go check out Michael's Instagram, at Michael Zagaris. I'll put the link in the description, but a lot of amazing work up there of all the different musicians and uh, sports figures and uh, much, much more on there. So definitely go give him a follow. And as always, I'll be 
be having a weekly podcast on iTunes, Spotify, as well as our new YouTube uh, channel. It's The Photo Banter on YouTube um, for the video version. Um, so definitely go check that out. And as always, thanks so much for listening and take care.